I'm not going to lie to you, Chelsea. Mm -hmm. It's been a week. Oh, it's we're going. Been a week. Yes, tell me tell me everything immediately. Well, let me just say hello and welcome to what? This is episode 43 <laughs> of your favorite part documentary, part competition podcast, where two adults give each other a book report on something that they find to be fascinating. And it's a sort of competition to tell who is the funniest and most interesting person. Uh, my name's Ellie May. I am the host every week. And with me, as always, I have the wonderful, immaculate, perfect and beautiful Chelsea Harfouche. Oh my god, that was so sweet. Oh, I was going to ask you, it feels like you're like speed running through. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but maybe it's just the week energy. It's because I want to get to the week, is what it is. I feel almost bad telling you that it is Tuesday. I know. Mm -hmm. And that I is think hard. I've now started to think of my weeks as beginning and ending on Tuesday. Because this is when we record the podcast. Oh, that's so good. This is the time I get to update you on what has been, in capital letters, my week. Oh my God, please tell me about capital letters, capital Y, your capital W, week. I will. Well, it's just been a great deal of existentialism, dread, panic, um, and, oh. and, and, uh, like, what do you call it when you have, like, things that help you get back to how you were feeling before drugs yes <laughs> yes exactly uh -huh. um actually oh i had it so to be fair i did have a nice weekend where i got to see miles's family yes. and hang out and do that but in all the in between has been me looking for a job and not finding one oh, and yeah. dealing with the feelings that come when that happens, that's like, hey, you're not worth the the time that you put into late stage capitalism. And yeah. then the rest of your brain being like, but that's all I've ever known. It's deeply dehumanizing. It's yeah. one of the most dehumanizing experiences I've ever been through. Yeah. For a job, I didn't have a job. Yeah. Because it's hard to find. Because <laughs> I don't have one. And I would imagine that finding, trying to find one during COVID is probably also not. It's like a new level of unfun. Yeah. It's like how finding a job used to be. Oh yeah, well, you know, you'll hear within the week. And now it's like you'll hear within a six month period. And yeah. just just sit tight and it do what and do what you're doing, which is video games and laundry. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to find things to uh, make me feel like I'm doing something. And so today I watched a lot of videos about directing short films. And I was gonna say this is all starting to kind of make sense to me in mm. terms of the text that you had sent me. Please explain. Blue, which was like, <laughs> "Hey, would you want to write a short film that I could direct? Yeah, uh, that we could like not cost any money." And this is one of those like beautiful things about Ellie's and my friendship. And I, I do sometimes wonder like what the podcast listeners if like sometimes they're like hey stop sucking each other off and just like get to <laughs> we, the can't. <laughs> we can't and we can't and we won't um because i was i have been thinking i i haven't been in the same like level of existential crisis but i've been like in like a little mini crisis like today real true story i sang to myself like jenny from forrest gump the song from moulin rouge where she's like 
One day I'll fly Aww. away. Leave all this to yesterday. Uh, why waste the dream to dream? Yeah, that. And it sounded like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we've all been there. And I was thinking about how I felt like being creative is easier with you. Oh. Like, whenever we're kind of having, like, a creative session, ideas and stuff like that just come easily. And and I don't want to, like, talk too much about myself because we were talking about you. But, like, I've been in really in my head that, like, uh, all of my ideas are not, like, original enough. Because with the... I get that. I get that place. Well, like, so, like, with the pilot that I've been, like, sending around to, like, screenplay competitions just to see how they would go, like, that is usually the thing that, like, comes back with needs improvement is, like, hook or, like, originality. And it has put me, like, so in my head that, like, now all my, feel like, ideas feel, like, not original. But I'm, like, well, I never feel like that when I'm, like, working on stuff with Ellie where I'm just, like, oh, like, anytime we have an idea, I'm, like, let's do it. So I have been trying to work on this idea for like a film that like we could actually make. Mm -hmm. And then right when I had been thinking about that, that is when you texted me and was like, do you want to write something? And I was like, oh my God, this is such bizarre kismet. Synchronicity. Yeah. Incredible. I love that. I love that so much. Also, may I just say as like a little stopping point that that, um, feedback is bullshit. (laughs) It's bullshit because I watch a lot of TV, like a lot of TV, <laughs> like a lot, like a lot of television. I watch, I watch a lot of it and have yeah. and always have and will and will continue because I love it. My favorite thing in the world is prestige television that makes you feel something and then you finish it and you're like, oh, fuck, it's good. And I have never watched or read a pilot like the one that you wrote. <laughs> If I can just jump on your dick for a second. Oh my god! If you, can, they're literally they're at home like, oh my god! So you guys are the worst. Please. Uh- yeah. Um, yeah. Trying to find a job is the worst fucking feeling. But also not wanting one. Yeah. But needing real one. talk. I rewatched all of episodes recently. I love it. Isn't oh, it so good? It's so good. And if you haven't seen it, it is about like a couple who are writers who yeah. write like a prestige comedy well, in essentially the UK. They, they write the the show that they write is a rip off of the History Boys, which is hilarious. Which and they was do a, bring up, yeah, which was a play that then got turned into a movie with like James Corden, mm-hmm. and it's very good. And it's very sort of Dead Poet Society carpe diem sort of stuff. And so the idea was that two <laughs> two English writers who are a couple who made that as a TV show, which is, you know, kind of a Downton Abbey, very slow, character-driven. Very British. Very British show. Comes to America and they turn it into a show called Pucks. <laughs> a Pucks exclamation point. Which is starring. like a, Which is an ice hockey team yeah. instead of a history class starring Matt LeBlanc as the coach. As the coach instead of the headmaster. But he plays Matt LeBlanc playing Matt LeBlanc. Yeah. And post- he- friends and joey and he you know what he crushes a brave con- a brave performance because it's not an, exactly a flattering portrayal. oh no a like complete ripoff of trying himself. to imagine the producers pitching that to matt leblanc must have been terrifying oh my gosh like what if he would like look at them and said who the fuck do you think you <laughs> so, are okay so matthew um it's you uh playing you and you are clinging to the friend's fame for everything it's worth. And no, but nobody else from friends will talk to you because you're such an asshole. What do you say? 
So that show rules. It is very good. And I rewatched it because it is, you know, like I, I, even in my very limited experience, I was like, oh, this was what it was like to be like treated like a piece of shit while everybody smiles and tells you how great you are. Yeah. Uh, in like and, trying to be creative. And, and they're, like, they are supposed to be established writers. And they're supposed to be like BAFTA award winning yes. writers. Um, That's not right. I'm ready to come in here with a fact bang. Oh my God. Fact bang me. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Laura Main, are you listening? <laughs> She's so upset. It is perked up. Um, I thought you might enjoy this, and I think it is the perfect epilogue on what has been a real bee heavy season. On what? It's been a lot of bees. Like, oh, B E E. B E E. Not be heavy. Bee heavy. Okay. <laughs> Not a bee heavy. Not a bee heavy, but a bee heavy. There is a traditional European custom called, quote unquote, telling the bees. Mm-hmm. where bees would be informed about important events like deaths, births, and marriages. And the feeling was that if the bees weren't properly informed, then they would leave the hive or stop pollinating or producing honey, which would like really affect your, your garden. Aww. So if something happened in your family, you would have to go outside and tell the bees. Tell it to my bees. Tell me. So I'm that they were aware bee. as well, because they're a part of the family because they help with your like personal garden and crops. And I thought that was real sweet. That is very sweet. Yeah, you're like, well, grandma's just died. Better go tell the bees. <laughs> <laughs> what if that was just like one uncle who was like really uncomfortable with his own feelings, like excuse to leave when things got heavy, where he's just like, well, somebody's got to tell the bees. Someone just goes outside and sobs. <laughs> is it the equivalent <laughs> of what dads do now, which is like when, so- like from my personal experience, when there's like a, a, a emotional tragedy in the house, they do a little pause, a little look, and then they say, uh, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a cup of tea. Do you think that's the equivalent? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 100%. Is your title? <gasps> My title. Her title. Is the many lives of old smoke. <laughs> of old smoke. I want to localize the little sound that you just made. Ooh, <laughs> 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 it was adorable. Give me your new uh, phone ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a notification. <laughs> yeah, because it's just like a little. <laughs> the many uh, lives of old smoke old smoke and that's not old scratch nope that's different don't know who that is that's satan oh isn't it sure it's isn't like- him i mean, no he's had many lives especially the one i'm listening to currently which is detailed in <laughs> the strand <laughs> what <laughs> the devil oh the strand. what's the strand you know the stand <laughs> i'm gonna cut that out <laughs> you better <laughs> I will. If you cut that out, I will reference it every five minutes for the rest of the episode. I meant The Stand by Stephen King that I'm listening to because Chelsea told me it was amazing and now <laughs> I feel stupid. So good. Don't I, feel stupid. I've had eight glasses of wine. I was about to say, you're quite a few cups in. Yeah, Old Scratch is an old pseudonym for the devil. That's cool. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I feel like it came up in maybe a Stephen King book or something where like, some guy from Maine was like, oh, no, Old scratch. scratch. I've discovered a term that Stephen King loves. Go on. Which is instead of the term or event blowjob, uh-huh. he he likes to use the word gobble. <laughs> and I find it really difficult to get past. <laughs> it's tough every time. 
especially when it's being read to you by like an old actor and you're driving back from Colorado and you're maybe in your like 10th or 11th hour of that drive and he starts talking about someone gobbling. I just, ooh, that was tough, you know? Um, I have a really annoying story. And he just me. kept saying it is the thing. <laughs> It was, it was maybe eight or nine times. <laughs> well, was it in the voice of the person who was the narrator for that chapter? Like, were, did they seem like the kind it's, of person that would say gobble? That's see, what's interesting is that <laughs> the chap that reads you the 47 hour long audiobook for the stand um, is just the same voice. He, he does not change his voice. He does not try to do that. He does not do that. Part. I mean, how that would be a long time. It's 47 hours. <laughs> well, I don't know. The guy that does the Game of Thrones books does it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's being paid more. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> well, Old Smoke. You haven't even guessed at all. Yeah, okay. Smokey the Bear. Nope. A volcano, a mountain. Nope. A geological. He is not a geological. Shit. Oh, I gave it away. A man. A man. A man. It is a <laughs> Amen. It is Amen. Man. You are, you are 100% correct. Oh my God. Man. Nailed it. <laughs> What's your title? She'll never can tell. She will never can tell. Yes. And I stand by that. <laughs> she, she will never can tell. <laughs> well, it is. So it is a clue and we'll get into it. But also, it's inspired by uh, the thing that we always say Mamba is thinking, which is, I'll just don't know. Okay. So, she'll she'll just never can tell. She'll just never can tell. I've never had a blank of mind <laughs> than at this point. <laughs> Do you think it could be because you're on your eighth glass of wine? Nope. <laughs> I'm thinking about, okay. I'll give you a slight hint because please, you're so blank. Please do. Okay. I'm lost. Show never can tell. Terrifying. <laughs> Very scary. <No. laughs> uh, it sounded like a little child nursery rhyme, like from like a haunting of Hill House kind of. Oh my Keep god. Keep going. Um, you don't remember. Show. I mean, I'm changing the words a little bit, but like. Show never can tell. A spooky children. Any of <gasps> a haunting a haunt scary ghost ghost children okay. maybe I am starting to feel bad I guess again like we'll get into it but maybe this didn't make it across the pond and then I'll feel bad because this is a pop culture reference oh and so, it's probably that I'm just stupid I don't think so <laughs> like in a sweet way not like in like I'm like in a mean way. <laughs> yeah no no like and I'm like oh, it's so stupid cute but stupid like that's so but me I'm just like so stupid I have something else really funny to tell you. It's completely unrelated, which is that uh, we tried to show Celia, young Celia, friend of the pod. uh, (laughs) Young Celia, friend of the pod, who's now my new roommate. uh, God's not dead too. God's on trial. Oh, good. Uh, But she was really drunk and we told her to write it into the like YouTube thing using the Xbox controller. Yes. And she wrote uh, (laughs) God on trial too. God's on trial. I do remember. I do remember you telling. Go, go on trial too. Go on trial. I do think about it at least once a week, and then I thought about it a second ago too because I saw that one of the books in the background of your screen is uh. Got, I thought it said Ground stories. 
Yeah, it's just called... Now I can see it. It is called God Stories and not God's Stories. <laughs> or God's Tories, which would yeah, be even worse. Yeah, would be worse. But God Stories, and I was like... <laughs> God's on trial, too. God's on trial. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I'm like, is my calling in life to make uh, Christian movies that don't suck? Well, and then like- I'm like, God, hope not. <laughs> I really hope not. That's going to be like your, I don't know if this is maybe too blasphemous. I hope not. Uh, big ups to the big man. Yes, I did. But, but, um, Thanks for this year. But that could be really like your struggle in the desert. of just like That's you kind of how I feel thing. sometimes. That like it, it just seems to pop up a lot. Uh-huh. And people, and then especially Max is like, yeah, you just have to make a Christian movie that's good. And I'm like, I don't know if I can. Well, two counterpoints, because I'm now getting into my cups. Counterpoint one, I have always wanted to do a rom-com that was sort of like an indie mumblecore style rom-com about like kind of like a hipster woman who falls in love with like a Christian guy, but like treat it totally earnestly. Like it's not a joke. I like that. Right? Yeah. Like, and just be like, like, every, you know, like, lean into how are often like about like, we like each other, but here's the problem. Yeah. It's like, well, what if like, yeah, that yeah, was the yeah. problem? I like that. Yeah. I feel like that would have, I feel like it uh, would, have, would have a train wreck vibe. Oh yeah. Kind of. For sure. Well, and just like a lot of, it, I feel like would be like her being like, I bet you're judging me. And he's just like, no, no, I like you. Maybe your, uh, your mission is not to make a good Christian movie. Maybe it is to finally give in to my suggestion that I've had for over a year, which is that we make a supplementary podcast to this podcast where we watch all those bad Christian movies. I do actually really love that idea. <laughs> I mean, you and Max. Yeah, because we're going to do you, you and Max. <laughs> it would be very funny. I feel that I might need to like recruit one more person to oh you need someone on your no, side because, no because no because you're in the middle right yeah yeah you're in the middle max is decidedly at one side and i'm decidedly at the other. so it would be quite yeah, fun that's be that's yeah Stat, uh tm guys tm 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 what would you call Don't it? it um god on trial too god on trial. <laughs> <laughs> A gambler, a boxer, an Irish mafia boss, and a senator walk into a bar. They're all roles played by someone. They're all the same person. (gasps) Is old smoke. Same person, mate. Same person? This is the story of John Morrissey. I'm betting that he is not the musician Morrissey. He's not Morrissey the musician. (laughs) Okay, good. He is not Morrissey, comma, the musician Morrissey. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, no this uh, no this is the john morrissey the u.s senator john lived from february the 12th 1831 to may the 1st 1878 so we're talking 19th century okay and there's a lot of ground to cover because john really made his way around i do love a lot of ground on as you can tell from his many lives so born in ireland in Templemore, Count Tipperary, off of It's a Long Way to Tipperary. Ever heard that song? Not a, even one bit. Oh, it's like a little... Uh, yeah, sing it immediately. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way, I know. It's a long way to Tipperary. I'm looking up the words. Say, this one Goodbye, awful Piccadilly. Farewell, Leicester Square. <laughs> it's a long, long way to Tipperary. But my heart's right there. And you sing it in a round. So Morrissey's father... 
having seven daughters and just one son. Nice. So he's got seven sisters. He worked as a laborer to support his large family when they all moved to Troy, New York in 1833. So they were very early immigrants to the USA. Cheers to that. Uh, John started working at 12 years old in a wallpaper factory and then worked in an ironworks and then a stone foundry. But by the age of 11, he was well involved in the gang rivalry of the area. Like Goodfellas. Just like Goodfellas. It was a gang rivalry between the downtowns and the uptowns. Oh, good. (laughs) Yes. And he was the quote unquote chief devil of the downtown gang. So he, at 17 years old, was like, the head of a little Irish mafia gang. I like that. He won a fight with a 24-year-old guy called John O'Rourke, who was the leader of the Uptown Gang, which kind of gave him some serious notoriety in the area. He also worked as a bouncer at a brothel in South Troy, and before he was 18, he had been arrested twice for burglary, once for assault and battery, and once for assault with intent to kill. So this guy is... He is a guy... He's not afraid of a fight. I see that. At all. 17-year-old devil. Yeah, exactly. How do you get that job? Um, I guess he's just like a tough guy in the area who's not afraid to deck someone in the face. I mean, have you considered? (laughs) Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do with this time off that I have from being, uh, from contributing to capitalism. (laughs) So he became a deckhand on the North River Steamer Empire in 1848 and for the next two years he traveled between albany and new york city so he kind of he basically moved to new york his salary was 15 dollars a month perfect but he would just steal from the packages taken but like taken on the ship that he was going between well, yeah, as, is, as is his right yeah uh it was the introduction to her to the shadow economy in which he would make his fortune things took a little bit of a turn when his boss was beaten up at the Empire Club in New York City, Morrissey went in for revenge and probably to prove himself. He marched into the Empire Club and declared himself the toughest pugilist in the Eastern Seaboard and here to prove it. <laughs> what an amazing entering life to just walk into a club and be like, I am the baddest bitch and I'm here to show you. And I'm here to say, I'm here to fucking prove it. Yeah. Um, Pugilist is one of those words that I literally only know because of video games. I'm not 100% what it means. It's uh, somebody who fights with their hands, like a boxer. Okay, so he yeah. meant what he said. Yeah. He's out of a fight. He managed to hold his own for a while. The Irishman was soon knocked out. Because he, Uh-oh. <laughs> he was hit over the head with a spittoon. <laughs> like in a video game, like in um, Grand Theft Auto, let's like kind of do a little like zoom out. And sitting at one of the booths watching all this happen is the leader of Tammany Hall, <gasps> Isaiah Rinders. Yes. He was very impressed by the young man's audacity and he hired him on the spot. Tammany Hall, what do you know about that? I know very vaguely that Tammany Hall is, I don't know what it is, but I know that it is synonymous with like sort of like organized crime in New York. Especially in the 19th century. Yes, exactly. I don't know what it actually, like, is it a real hall or is it, is that city hall or like... Take that and add like, imagine like Salt Bay Uh sprinkling corruption on it. I see. Okay. So 
Tammany Hall was also known as the Society of St. Tammany, or the Sons of St. Tammany, or even the Columbian Order. That makes sense because, you know, I was born in St. Tammany Parish, which is not related to Tammany Hall. Really? Yeah, but I always wondered what, I always wondered who St. Tammany is, and I guess, like, this is my first reference of, like, St. Tammany outside of where I was born. That's amazing. Okay. I'm so excited to tell you more. So... Tammany Hall is a New York City political organization, which was founded in 1786. And it's the main local political machine of the Democratic Party at the time. Gotcha. Which they were done flipped at that time. Right? They were done flipped at that time, I believe. Yes. yes. Um, That's why conservatives <clears throat> are always like, you can't not recognize you at all. No, but exactly. Nice. So Tammany Hall played a major role in controlling New York City and New York State politics and helping immigrants, most notably Irish immigrants, rise in American politics between the 1790s and the 1960s. So this went on for a long time. It was only in the 1960s, kind of the middle of the 1960s, that this the whole thing was disbanded. That would be a good follow-up topic, too. It would I be, did not know it went on that Oh, I started reading this and being like, I can't go into too much detail because there's so much here. But yes, it would very much be its own topic. Typically controlled Democratic Party nominations and political patronage in Manhattan um, after the mayoral victory of this guy called Fernando Wood. So this guy Fernando Wood became mayor of New York in 1854 and they were real tight. He was tight with Tammany Hall. And so he used his patronage to build a loyal, very well-rewarded core (laughs) of district and precinct leaders, um, most of whom were Irish Catholics. So, he gets in with this lot. Morrissey's like, you guys, we, we're tight. We're the same. Let's do this <laughs> And same. we're actually the same. We're actually the same. So, he has this fight. This bloke's like, oh, he would be great for our cause. And it was during this time in New York, he is said to have acquired his nickname, Old Smoke, as a result of this fight. So, okay. according to one story, during a fight with a man called... Thomas McCann. Morrissey was said to have been pinned on his back atop burning coals from a stove that had been overturned. And he just endured it. And as his back burned, he fought this guy McCann off, got back on his feet and beat McCann senseless while smoke was burning from his back, which earned him the nickname Old Smoke, which he carried to the rest of his life. So this was like his... This became his like moniker. Everyone's like, "Oh, that's all. Oh, that's Smokey John." That's fucked up. <laughs> Have you ever seen that movie, Rob Roy? No. Another like real like shitting on the English movie. Mm, good. It's very good. It's about the reason I bring it up is because it's basically like you know how like whenever there's like a big movie, there's a lesser movie that's like about sort of the same themes. Yeah. Like, like Bugs Life and Ants. Yeah, yeah. So this was the Bugs Life Ants of Braveheart. So you had Braveheart, that yeah. was like the Scottish and like fuck the English. And everyone's crying. And then you had Rob Roy starring Mr. Liam Neeson's <gasps> and um, Tim Roth and the lady that is the witch on American Horror Story, Witch. Jessica Lang? Yes, Jessica Lang. And it's really good. But anyway, the reason I bring it up is because it has like this perfect sort of like English ver- versus Scotsman like moment. Spoilers for this movie that's like 35 years old. But um, please don't email us. Please don't email us. But basically they're they're having a duel, right? For the honor of Jessica Lang. Okay. And it's Rob Roy 
Liam Neeson Scott and then Tim Roth like this like English gentleman who's like very mean okay. and he has this like little rapier and um, Rob Roy has this big like Scottish like broadsword that's like a two handed broadsword right? yeah. so basically Tim Roth is like death by a thousand cutsing him because in the time that it takes Rob Roy to swing his great sword Tim Roth has his little rapier and he's like and he's chopping in yeah and he's just like he just keeps slashing at him right and it seems like very clear that like He's probably going to win just from that. So then, in this moment, it's incredible. Liam Neeson reaches out and grabs the rapier by the sword. And you see the sword just go into his hand. He just cut his fingers off. Yeah, no, it's just cut. He's holding it. He's gripping it. But he's holding it. And then then Tim Roth is like, I can't move Because he has the strongest fingers. And he's just holding his rapier. And blood is like gushing out of his hand. And then he takes his greatsword with his other hand and just cuts the guy in half. And it's so fucking wicked but it's that same That's energy incredible. it's so good it's the same energy as the old smoke where it's like and like i know obviously that like the irish and the scots are different and they have a very different history but it's like that same like sort of like underdog energy of like yeah. go fuck yourself like yeah. i will endure almost anything if i get to, if it means like to beat the shit out of you you think i'm dead guess what yeah so good oh i mean so then what happens in 1851 but the California gold rush. Oh, yeah, for sure. For, for sure. Morris is like, I fancy a, a bit of that old gold. So he he journeys his way to California, as many were doing at the time. He didn't really have any luck in the old panning, didn't seem to have the attention span for it. But he became renowned as a gambler, made a fortune winning gold off prospectors instead of trying to find it himself. His obituary recounts an incredible journey with a guy called Daniel Dad. Cunningham, mm-hmm. the dad, Mr. Dad Cunningham, who cha- with him, he chased gold from San Francisco into Canada, entering Canada as a pirate. It turned out he was very, very incredible with his fists. And he used all this experience to discover a life in prize fighting, which was very <laughs> yes. illegal at the time. You say very illegal? Very illegal at the okay. time. Is it still? I guess prize fighting has just evolved into, again, the capitalistic yeah. sort of... it's become the sport of boxing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, at that time, it was like, oh, people die because... Fighting you... for money? You right. Because at that time, you, you would fight people till they died. And then oh. they were like, oh, that sucks. Um, actually, I'm like going to get into it. Get into it. So August 31st. 1852 he defeated george thompson in california in the 11th round and he earned five grand which was by defeating do you probably mean? a shit ton of money at that point he didn't kill him okay no no he just he took to the point where he was like i don't want to box you anymore um and so then he was like oh you know what i'm gonna go back to new york and i'm gonna fight the american champion of prize fighting a guy called yankee sullivan i'm gonna do that Oh, you little Yankee. So he returned to New York. He challenged Sullivan repeatedly until basically Sullivan was like, no, I don't want to do that. No, this is illegal. No, this is dumb. Please leave me alone. Please leave me alone. Stop. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. You know what? Fine. I'll fight fight that much? Let's fight. Because of how violent the sport was, it was illegal in most places during the 1850s. The first boxing quote-unquote like boxing rules which were developed in the 19th century into the london prize ring rules were introduced by heavyweight champion jack broughton in 1743 to protect fighters in the ring where deaths sometimes occurred under these rules if a man went down and could not continue under a count of 30 seconds the fight was over so that's the like 
but but KO that we now know now. Mm-hmm. Hitting a down fighter and grasping below the waist were prohibited. So, but and but despite that, fights usually lasted for twenty to thirty rounds. Oh, yeah. Rounds yeah, continued so cool. until one fighter touched the ground with his knee, or just you know out mm-hmm. cold. So, articles for the fight between Sullivan and Morrissey were signed on September 1st, 1853. The stake money was $1,000 aside, and it was specified that the new rules of the London prize ring would be applied. Morrissey went into training two days after signing the articles. Never trained before that. (laughs) The fight between Morrissey and Sullivan took place on October 12th, 1853, in the hamlet of Boston Corners, which was in Massachusetts, uh, which was out of reach of its authorities, so it was out of the law, uh, which was obviously a great location for this very much illegal match. The fight took place in a field reportedly viewed by over 3,000 people, which is... How? <laughs> Because I guess so, fuck all. it was just like this is a piece of land where the police don't have any authority, so we can do what we want. Oh, I miss those days, right? So even if the cops turned up, they could be like, okay, they're like, sorry, this field well, is not our jurisdiction. Yeah, we're, we're doing it. Uh, Sullivan dominated the match for most of the fight, but Morrissey held his own. The fight continued for thirty-seven rounds. When a struggle between the fighters on the ropes developed into hostilities, apparently it hadn't been hostilities between that point. And then because of that, a general riot broke out and the whole crowd broke out into a fight and broke the ring, like broke the ring down. So this, the, the civilities of this boxing match completely broke down. And within this sort of complete chaos, the report said that it, the decision was given to Morrissey although it was not clear why that was that verdict was made. Um, they eventually boiled it down to a foul blow. And then the police got involved and were like, you can't do this and find him $1,200. Despite that, he decided to become involved in democratic politics and developed a rivalry with a guy called William Poole, who was known as Bill the Butcher. <gasps> I do know that name. Poole was the leader of the Bowery Boys, who were enforcers of the Know Nothing Party. Yes. The Know Nothing Party, which is formerly known as the Native American Party, which was just people, like, just colonialists who decided that they were native. Have you ever seen Gangs of New York? No. It's okay, but it's got, I mean, it's got really beautiful visuals because this is a Scorsese film. Okay. But it was, like, the film that he wanted to make for, like, 20 years. It was, like, his passion project. Okay. And it's about Bill the Butcher. And the Bowery Boys, and they call themselves Native Americans in the movie. Um, and it's it's all about, which is the thing that we definitely know about today, um, how like each successive group of uh, of immigrants to America were conditioned to treat the next group as the immigrants. Right. So it's like we're all like on stolen land, but they're like, well, we're the Native Americans. Right. And you Irish people are the immigrants. And we don't want to give you any jobs. Right. So these guys and were, they were like, just wait till these Italians come. <laughs> it's your time. So these guys were colonialists and settlers and uh, they decided to call themselves Native Americans. And they had something. quote unquote was a nativist political party. No. Uh, which was primarily started as a secret society and then developed into a political movement. And it was an anti-Catholic, anti-immigration, populist, xenophobic movement. Although 
Also, progressive on issues of labour rights, opposition to slavery and the need for government spending, as well as support for an expansion of the rights of women, regulation and industry, and support of measures designed to improve the status of working people. So quite confusing. I'm going to say, look, politics be changing all the time. Exactly. They were like, but just for us. Not for like well, not for our women, not for any other women. No, any other women, just the ones that are already here and yes. please leave us alone. Uh, it was a forerunner to the temperance movement of the United States. And uh, the native spirit is seen in the America American Protective Association and the Ku Klux Klan. Ooh. So fun. So the Know Nothing movement briefly emerged as a ma- major political party in the form of the American Party. And it's called that because adherence to the movement was simply to reply, I know nothing, when asked about specifics by outsiders. Oh, good. So people were like, hey, what do you guys stand for? And they go, I know nothing. Don't even ask. Uh, uh, hey, cool. Um, so that's what this guy, William Poole, stood for. So, on August 8th, 1854, a fight was arranged, like a fist fight was arranged between William Poole and John Morrissey at the corner of Western Amel Street. And according to a newspaper report, after some sparring, Poole threw Morrissey on the ground and was on top of him in an instant, pounding, gouging, bucking and biting, forcing Morrissey to concede the fight. So Morrissey, 100% lost, but he was pretty pissed by it. So... Just a few months later, in February 1855, two of his friends shot and fatally wounded Bill the Butcher, uh, killed him. Morrissey and his mate Baker were indicted for the murder, but the charges were dropped after three trials resulting in hung juries. (laughs) Uh, That's how you beat it. That's how you do it. So he retired from boxing... He focused on owning a, owning a bunch of gambling establishments. He owned stakes in 16 casinos at one point. He also established the Clubhouse, which was a casino in Saratoga that had notable guests such as Chester A. Arthur, Rutherford B. Hayes, Ulysses S. Grant, Cornelius Vanderbilt, John D. Rockefeller, and Mark Twain. <laughs> so quite a few blokes you might have heard of. Maybe so. In 1866, Morrissey ran for Congress with the backing of Tammany Hall at the time. Despite his political rivals pointing out his numerous indictments and convictions for various crimes, sounds familiar at all? I don't know. (laughs) He became a congressman and served two terms. So he served as a congressman from 1867 to 1871 in the 40th and 51st United States Congress. And as a congressman, he always looked out for the interests of the Irish primarily, and he was known to use strong-arm tactics to accomplish his legislative goals at one point allegedly declaring he could lick any man in the house which I guess means like beat them up but the- <laughs> yeah it took just- me a second to be like oh I'm gonna give you your licks but yeah yeah I'll, very mamba. I'll lick you <laughs> oh I'll lick you but so so he was a congressman who was backed by Tammany Hall but he grew tired of this rampant corruption in Tammany Hall and left the house after his second term because it turns out Tweed and his friends would massively upcharge on public constructions and pocket the difference. In early 1870, Morrissey joined a faction called the Young Democracy that revolted against Boss Tweed's, that's what they called him, William Tweed, Boss Tweed's authoritarian rule. He, Tweed, however, learned of their plot to unseat him as head of Tammany Hall and used policemen to prevent Young Democracy members from entering the building on the night of their planned coup. And the whole organization very quickly folded and Morrissey was embarrassed, so he didn't try and become a congressman again. Instead, 
he tried to question the wisdom of Tammany Hall's selection of a mayoral candidate by visiting the new mayor, this guy Wickham. Uh, he was barred from entry because he lacked a calling card and being a bit of a douchebag, he, he sarcastically replied, give my compliments to his honor, Mayor Wickham, and ask him to tell Billy Wickham that when John Morrissey has time to put on French airs, he may call again. <laughs> <laughs> Morrissey returned a few days later dressed in formal attire, a swallowtail coat with kid glo- white kid gloves and patent leather shoes, carrying a large book, and he informed a curious friend, I just bought a French dictionary to help me talk to our dandy mayor. I'm going in full dress to make a call, for th- that is now the style at the Hotel Wickham. No Irish need apply. He's real got, got a real chip on his shoulder there. That's great. That's good for him. Eventually, Morrissey testified against William Tweed and put him in prison, and then was elected as an anti Tammany Democrat to the New York State Senate in 1875. Uh, then again re-elected in 1877, sitting in the 99th and 100th and 101st New York State legislatures. Legislatures. Thank you. Um, so this man, who this man, this man who was uh, head of an Irish mafia group, a boxer, a gambler, a congressman, a, sw- a swindler. Is a gangster congressman. All of, all of those things. He contracted pneumonia and died on the May on May first, eighteen seventy eight, at the age of forty seven. And the state closed all offices, and flags were flown at half mast. <laughs> the entire state senate attended his funeral in, in Troy, New York, held on May fourth, eighteen seventy eight, and twenty thousand mourners lined the street to pay their respects just as many as were at trump's and he is buried in saint peter's cemetery just outside troy new york so that is the many lives of old smoke wow that crazy i it is like what a piece of shit (laughs) yeah i mean it's not that it's good no not good Uh, i you know i think this comes up a lot especially recently with like the way the thing's been going that like um we probably process more information in you know a single day than like a peasant in like the you know 18th century would process in their entire lives um or another one that i think about that's maybe like more physical is like you know even being like uh like middle class like thoroughly like working middle class i still traveled like overseas like at least once right like, but and i was and i was able to do that like the only thing that was really stopping me was like the cost of it um and it, even being like working or like middle class we oh it was always a given that we could like travel around like the us yeah uh, whereas even like a hundred years ago, chances are that you would be born and die in like the exact same place. Yeah. And, and like, like traveling was only for like the aristocracy. Yeah. Um, and so then every once in a while that we hear one of these stories about somebody that just really like just fucked around and went all over town <laughs> and did all this stuff and met all these people and had like 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 many different lives. Then I'm like, yeah, that like that's even more fucking metal. Like it's <laughs> like more metal than doing it now. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Like he's like, I'm gonna go to California. No idea where that is, what that looks like, but apparently there's gold. So I see mean, you guys later. Yeah, it could be demons. Yeah, it could be very bad. The dude really lived. That dude sure lived. Well, I'm gonna give you Seven points for how much that dude really lived. Thank you. Um, and I am gonna give you. <laughs> oh, no. I'm gonna take away one point for the fact that uh, 
you sang that like English marching on the Irish <laughs> song, but I'm going to give back four points because I could tell that that was a difficult revelation for you. <laughs> I can't wait to know. I can't wait to know if, like, when I say it, you're going to be like, oh! Same. You're going to be like, I have no idea what you're fucking Same. talking about. Same. So, we do have to do a bit of a departure. Okay. And a bit of a preface. Because. Preface me. I'm kind of preface. <laughs> preface me! <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that we have a hard rule on this podcast, which is no true crime. Okay, yes. However, we also have a hard soft rule which is we love a a conspiracy theory sure so i'm hoping that this can bridge that gap because it's a little it's it's veering on the edge of true crime but it's not truly true crime. like a soft boiled egg it's like yes sure and yes it's like a soft boiled egg and also i thought if i set up a theme because i know a lot of times like i love to like bring a theme in at the end yep 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 but i thought if i set up a theme in the beginning that would help so that it was not her crime. Okay. So this is what we're going to talk about. You know, I'm happy to yes and whatever you're bringing yes in. And, folks. So let's talk about this, which is, first of all, we're also going to bring it back. This is what I love about this episode. In fact, this episode is, I don't know if it's just like these several glasses of wine talking. I feel like this is a very strong episode. Um, and part of it is because we get to do a callback already <gasps> to the original king of horror himself, Stephen King. Oh my God. Which is... There is a Stephen King book that's like a little bit of a departure because it's not horror called 112263. Okay. Do you know about it? No. So it's, I really like it. It's one of my, honestly, it's one of my favorite Stephen King books. Um, and it also was made into a miniseries starring James Franco, who I know is problematic, but he did a good job. What did uh, James, wait, was, hang on. What did James Franco do? Oh my God. Okay. This is so, I sometimes, okay. I imagine sometimes the date. Not Dave, because he's good. He's good! (laughs) James Franco lays awake at night and just thinks about how lucky he got that this happened two years before Me Too. (gasps) James Franco slid into the DMs of, like, I think, like, a 16-year-old and was like... And she and she was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you're messaging me." And he was like, "Yeah, you're hot. Like, where's your hotel? Can I come over?" She was visiting New York, and like she had like posted on Instagram like all these pictures of her like visiting New York with her family. And he was like, "You're so beautiful." And she's like, "I can't believe you're James Franco. Prove you're James Franco." And he sent like a picture with like her username, and then he's like, "Can I come to your hotel? Where are you staying?" And she was like, "Oh, I'm 16." And he was like, "I won't tell if you won't tell. Like, where are you staying?" And he was like, well into his thirties. But my favorite part of the story is because people like, and especially at that time, like this was when he was like doing all this stuff with like Seth Rogen and stuff. People liked James Franco so much that when this story broke and it was like a big news story, he went on Good Morning America and literally basically said like, well guys, I really messed up. And then like an aw shucks grin and everyone's like, oh my God. Wow, brave. So brave. Brave. And I'm like, if that had happened two years later, that man's whole career would have been over. Because it wasn't even just like, I didn't know she was 16 or anything. It was like a, I sure did. I'm 16. And he was like, so. Anyway, so I know James Frank is a little problematic. Great in this miniseries. 112263 is a fantasy story about a man 
who finds a portal back to the year 1959. Okay. And the way it works is basically like if you go into the portal, it's 1959 um, and you can like live your life. Like you can, you know, like live years in there, do whatever. But the minute that you go back through the portal, it's like five minutes or whatever after the, when you went in in your time. Yeah. And if you go back in again, it resets it. Okay. So So he is tasked by his mentor with going through, going into 1959, staying for four years, and present, preventing the assassination of JFK. Oh, shit. Like yeah. Umbrella Academy? Did they just rip that off? Probably. I I'll, Full disclosure, I haven't seen all Umbrella Academy. I know there's time travel in it. But yes, like the idea is like you have to go and you have to stay for four years. You have to also do all the investigating stuff. Okay. But also then after that, you have to come back to the present and then never go through again. Because <gasps> if you do, you'll reset everything you just did. Yeah, you'll fuck it all up. So... When they're talking about this and they're talking about, you know, he's talking to his mentor and he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to figure this out? People have been trying to figure this out for like 50 years. And you want me to figure out like in four years who kills JFK. And his mentor was like, oh, no, no, it was Lee Harvey Oswald. And then the main character's like, well, but I mean, you know, there's like all these like, was there another shooter? And what about the magic bullet? And then he's like, no, 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 it's Lee Harvey Oswald. It was this guy. It was this guy. Like, all the all the evidence points to it. And he says this thing that I've thought about, honestly, like, ever since I read it. I think about it all the time. Which is, sometimes something happens in your life that is so big that you feel, or that our human sort of, like, puzzle-obsessed brains are desperate to find something equally as big mm. to be the cause. Because we just can't process the idea that something that big and momentous would happen for no reason. I feel like you've talked about that before on this podcast. I probably have, because like I said, I really do think about it all the time. And so, like he was That saying, was it. We were talking about, like, is there, like, this big monumentous reason why Donald Trump is the way he is? And you said, uh, no, no, no. I think that... We want to think that way, but actually he's just a messed up person. Right. It's easier to think for us, for the way that human brains are designed to survive. It's easier to think that Donald Trump is part of some big conspiracy that's playing five dimensional chess with us. Yes. That everything is pre-planned. And and he knows exactly what he's doing. Exactly what he's doing. Then just to think that like a sad narcissist whose dad didn't love him enough became our president Mm. and did all these terrible things to people. So I think about that a lot. Obviously, you can apply to things like conspiracy theories, but I think you can also apply it into like really personal tragedies that happen to people. Mm -hmm. And so another great example that I think about a lot is this documentary I saw that's on HBO now, or I think it's on HBO Max, uh, and it's called Something's Wrong with Aunt Diane. Okay. Ever seen it? No. It's about... It's not a famous case. I mean, it was like a regional news story, but then they made this documentary about it. There was a car accident where a woman was driving down the freeway the wrong way, which is my nightmare. Terrifying. Uh, Yeah, she's driving down the freeway the wrong way in the middle of the day, and she hit another car head on. They were both going freeway speeds. She had in her car, I think like... So we're talking like 60 miles an hour. At least, if not like 70 or 80. Collision head on. Collision head on cars. Both people in the other car died. Yeah. In her car, she... I think two of her children and two of her brother's children died. Only one child survived. Oh. She was driving all the kids back from like a family camping trip. 
And the only clue they had as to why this happened was that right before they got on the highway, one of the children who later died called her mother um, and said something's wrong with Aunt Diane. And then the phone like went dead. Whoa. Here's the thing. They do this whole documentary and in the documentary... Um, they reveal that, like, afterwards, obviously, there was an autopsy, and Diane, this woman, she tested, she was, like, way over the legal limit for alcohol, and she also had marijuana in her system, which I don't think necessarily, like, I, I'm not going to get into, like, a big, like, you know, political thing about whether or not it's safe to drive or not drive on weed. Mm. I think when you're mixing a lot of substances, no matter what they are, it's right. great for driving. It's also, like, in the middle of the day, and she was driving children. Yeah. But here's the thing. And then there's also, they found, um, like, CCTV footage of her at a gas station on that trip. Okay. And she's acting really erratically, and she looks like she might be drunk. Okay. But since this has happened, um, Diane's husband and her brother, whose children died, have been on this, like, years-long crusade to be like, the autopsy is wrong. There must have been a medical reason. She was not drunk. I would know if my wife was an alcoholic. She was definitely not drinking on that trip. Like, something else must have been going on. There must be another reason. Okay. The mother of the children who died, so, like, her her sister-in-law, is like, no, like, this is how alcoholism works. You don't know about it. Right. Because it's a disease, and the, the deadly part of the disease is that it hides itself from people. And I don't know why you guys can't just accept that if the science says that she was drunk <laughs> and she did this thing in the middle of the day that she would normally never do... That, that, that those things all go together. But I think it really comes down to the same principle from the book, which is that when something that horrific happens, when your wife dies and she takes your children and your nieces and nephews with her, that you want to believe that there's this like big There's got to be, reason. yeah. And it, that it couldn't be as simple as she had too much to drink and she was hiding a drinking problem. Right. That's, like, impossible to bear, right? Yeah, okay. So that all comes together. That's a theme in which I want to explore this topic, which is not a true crime topic, but it touches true crime, which is recently I've been informed that there's an entire kind of conspiracy theory around the death of actress Brittany Murphy. <gasps> really? Did you know that? No. I didn't know that I thought either. she was just an overdose. It was an overdose. So that's, okay, so that's what's interesting. So Brittany Murphy, to get you up to speed... She was Thai and clueless. She was the one that said, you're a virgin who can't drive, which is so mean. So mean. And then mean. Alicia Silverstone was like, way harsh, Thai. <laughs> uh, and she was in, this is where the topic, the title comes in. She was really famous, not even for the role, but for the commercial for this movie called Don't Say a Word, mm. where she had like, she was like a mental patient and she had witnessed a murder. And then um, what's his name? The... A uh, guy that married Catherine Zeta Jones and said that her pussy gave him cancer. <laughs> come on, Ellie, come on. I don't know. Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. <laughs> so Michael Douglas is like, who did the murder? And in the commercial, Brittany Murphy's like, I'll never tell. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll never tell. I'll never tell. It's so famous. Oh my god, that was like that was like was a out level like oh. pop culture moment in the states of just okay. like her being like I'll never tell. I'll never and then she goes, tell. any of you 
Like that's wow. So that was really famous. She was in Uptown Girls with Dakota Fanning, and she was in uh, what's it called? Happy Feet, where she was the singing penguin. Oh, was she? Yes. Wait, I know her from Girl Interrupted. Yes, and she was in Girl Interrupted. She had the uh, what was it like Eden Eden Chicken, and it was Eden Kitchen. Yeah, yeah. She was definitely in that too. So she was she was a great actress, and she died way too young, at the age of thirty two. Yeah. And yes, what I re- this is what I remember the general media sort of story being because it was like two thousand nine. Um, was that like she died of cardiac arrest, which like a thirty two year old shouldn't die of. No. But the the reason why she died of cardiac arrest at thirty two was because she was on hydrocodone and a bunch of other like pharmacy like uh, prescription drugs. Right. And that she was anorexic. Because like, that, that was a big right. story. All of the medications that were in her system when she died, she was prescribed. Oh. Um, and she was at the, like, she was at the prescribed limit. So it wasn't like a Heath Ledger or a Whitney. Right. And they said, like, oh, she, they kept, like, mentioning, like, her weakened state. Well, which everybody took to mean anorexia because she had lost a lot of weight, pre like, very quickly right before this happened. Okay. in December of 2009. Okay. Um, so then everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, when you're anorexic, it it weakens your heart. And then she was taking all this medication and that made her weak. And then that's what made her heart just fail. Right. Well, there are two things that happened before and after that that make this a little bit more complicated. And I do remember kind of hearing these at the time, but it wasn't until recently, like in the last couple of weeks that I was, I started like going down this deep dive because there's like a TV show about it now. Wow. I was like, holy shit. Two things. One, she also, people don't talk about this as much, but the reason that she was prescribed all that medication is because she had pneumonia. Oh. So the pneumonia is what weakened her heart and also might have been at least part of why she had been losing so much weight. Okay. Depending on how long she had it. Right. Um, not, not, anore- like, it's not proof that she had anorexia. It's like the missing information was that she had pneumonia. Okay. And had, yeah. had been hospitalized for it. The second part of this Less than six months later, in the exact same house, her husband, Simon Monjack, died of the exact same condition. And Simon Monjack, unlike Brittany Murphy, was not underweight. Simon Monjack weighed close to 300 pounds. So he also died of a cardiac incident. Cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest. With no known, like, predisposition causes in the same house less than six months later. Holy shit. Yeah. And I remember some people said, like, Oh, well, he, like, died of a broken heart. And I'm like, well, this isn't Grey's Anatomy, bitch. Like, literally, like, that doesn't happen. And these people were relatively young and, like, had only recently started to have health problems and then died suddenly in the same place. So what I learned from going down this, like, insane rabbit hole is that there are a bunch of different conspiracy theories about why this would have happened. The one that Brittany Murphy's mother... So, and Brittany Murphy's mother was involved in this TV show that has come out and she's been very outspoken about this. Okay. She believes that there was toxic mold in the house that they lived in. And that the mold is what caused what the doctors thought was pneumonia, which caused them to prescribe all these medications because she kept getting sick and sick and it wasn't getting better because it wasn't pneumonia. It was a a toxic mold reaction. Right. And then that is what in turn made her so weak that she then had a cardiac event. And that would explain why then later Simon Monjack had also had like he didn't have he was never diagnosed with pneumonia from what I could tell. But like there are also stories of like that he had had seizures for like a year up until 
uh, he died to the point where like Brittany at any point would have to like run from where she was at in the house to where he was and like hold him down because he was just having violent seizures sometimes like multiple times a day the fuck yeah so Brittany Murphy's mom is like there was something in that house and that is also in and of itself kind of like a spooky thing because the house that they lived in was a three-story Mediterranean house that had previously belonged to Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake when they were together. Oh. And then when they split up, they got rid of it. And Britney Murphy and Simon Monjack bought it. And Britney Murphy was convinced that the house was cursed and would often go sleep in hotels instead of sleeping in the house. And then Simon would insist that she come home to be like, we bought this like multi-million dollar house. You have, we need to live in it. Ghost. I know. It's too- Ghost. Those people are like, oh yeah, that house was haunted as shit. Yeah. Britney Spears knew it and it's what ruined her relationship. And then Britney Murphy died because of it. Listen, like paranormal. <gasps> A ghost that hate Brit- hates Britney. Yeah, 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 if you're Britney, I would not live in that Don't house. live in that house, Britney. Yes. If you're thinking about buying it and you're somehow listening to this podcast, don't. There are people who think because there's no evidence of this. This, this is the part of like true crime that we don't want to get into, which is speculating about people's right. like guilt or innocence and like really serious stuff like other people's deaths there. But there is a group of people who believe from what I can tell without any evidence that Brittany's mother and Simon Wan Jack were in collusion to like control her. Like there are stories of like Brittany's mother being like, or people being like, well, Brittany's mother would like never let her go out and party and when she was younger and like doing movies. And it's like, well, is that controlling or is that like trying to be a good mom? Like there's like a, a fine line there. And so I don't know that it's evidence of it maybe not maybe might not be what you would do as a mother, but it's not evidence of like trying to murder your child. Yeah. So there's like this it's definitely again like to tie it back to the theme, I think things like this are easier to understand than just like a hey don't mix drugs and pneumonia and sometimes like doctors can get it wrong and you can get fucked. Right. So it's easier to believe like but okay, but what if there was this conspiracy where like the mother had Munchausen's by proxy and the husband was helping her control this beautiful <laughs> starlet, keeping her trapped in the house that she hated uh-huh. until she died. Uh, and then they had to get rid of the last bit of evidence, the husband. And then everybody is goused. And then everyone's ghost in the house. Uh-huh. Um, and then like the last theory is that Simon himself had like was controlling again like there's no real evidence to this other than it's a really interesting story is that he himself had munchausen's that 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 like his seizures and his sleep apnea and like the sort of like whole host of health issues that he purported to have were all self-induced okay to make britney take care of him and not like leave the house and not go work but stay with him and that they just exacerbated until it became like a folie a deux where like then she was part of the delusion and she was getting sick and then they were sickly together. Uh, okay. Always together. And then she OD'd and then he followed suit. But again, it's like you try to like follow these rabbit holes down and there's a lot of like kind of spooky details that that lend themselves to like the fantastical, like the house previously belonging to a different famous Britney. Yeah. Um, or like him having like these horrible seizures that people that people do remember seeing. But that doesn't mean that there was like some sort of weird like murder spiracy. Right. Like, but sometimes that's easier to understand, especially for a famous person. Yeah. Like Murphy, who dies really young, and you're like well, I, you know, she should have lived longer and she should have had this whole life and she should have made more movies and she should have had this whole career. And it sucks just to think that, like, 
something that simple and mundane could like suck mold. you out that fast. Like mold or like accidentally mixing the wrong drugs that your doctor told you were safe to take. Yeah. But it can and does happen. It totally, yeah. Oh my gosh, it absolutely does. I- yeah, mold is no joke. Pneumonia is no joke. No. I, I mean, think- what is COVID if not like... Well, it can cause pneumonia and also it's like a respiratory illness that like, you know, part of the part of the fucked up part of it that we can't seem to understand is that some people they're like, (laughs) and then they're done and other people are like dead and done and dead. In general, your respiratory system is not something to fuck with. We don't know how it fucking works. Reading all this, like I said, like I didn't sometimes like you go down a true crime rabbit hole and you come out the other side like, oh my God, the fucking brother did it or right. And other times you come through and it just, you are left with this profound sadness of like, if my child died or if my mother died or if, you know, like my best friend died, I think I would want to search for this like bigger, deeper mystery that's like, then I'm going to be able to like hold this key in my hand and be like, this is it. This is what happened. This is what did it. And sometimes that just doesn't exist. And that's so difficult for the grieving process. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, like that's part of what makes (laughs) come in real circle. That is part of what makes like COVID really hard is like, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm sure you did because we worked on a show about it. When I imagined the apocalypse, it wasn't this fucking boring and mundane. Like, you think about it in terms of, like, this, like, high drama, right? And I'm like, I'm going to have to, you know, ride What's my Asian. role going to be? Yeah, what's my role? Things, like, and it's not that you glamorize that You're like, I don't want that to happen. And things would be really terrible. But, like, here are all the, like, the seismic shifts that would happen in the world yeah like this happened and instead the pandemic came and it was just like well now you get to be really fucking bored and broke yeah yeah, yeah. and a lot of people are gonna really, really suffer and you're gonna have to watch it happen and there's nothing you can do and it's just gonna be prolonged by people's incompetence yes. uh-huh. have fun. and it's like you again like that's why people i think cling to this well what if it was a conspiracy and what if like so and so like let it out in the world to do this because then at least there would be like this bigger a reason, point this grand design, design. Yeah. And instead it's, it's just, just like, like it just no, sucks. it just sucks, it just sucks. <laughs> So that is the spooky stuff that I learned about Brittany Murphy. I do think there's something like very spooky about her dying and then her husband very who did not have the same sort of like health profile dying in the house of the exact same reason. Six months later, mm-hmm. they did do a bunch of tests for mold. They never found any traces of mold in the house. It might just be one of those things that fucking sucks. I'm going to give you five points oh for the creepy crossover Stephen King that we didn't know about. Because I love when we have synergy, we and it happens a lot. I love when we have synergy. It happens all the time. It's, it's like spooky. almost every episode. Like maybe this is like meant to be. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm gonna give you another four points for that. Because I never knew anything about that story. You really enlightened me on the Brittany Murphy story. Yeah, that's yeah, wild. I've always sort of put it in the same sort of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. group of someone who just got all the drugs in the time where she passed away there were a lot of celebrities passing away from drug abuse and so she kind of got lumped in with that mm-hmm. she kind of got it was it was like oh just another celebrity has passed i also think that we're a lot more empathetic about the way that we talk about well the way that we talk about like celebrity deaths or celebrity lives in general I like to think that we're moving to a place that's like a little bit more like Jesus Christ. These are people. Yeah. Uh, and then also I have noticed because there have been a, a couple of celebrities or like at least like notable figures that I followed recently who died suddenly. And honestly, it wasn't 
it wasn't unless you were like really plugged in um, that you would hear later that it was related to drugs. But like, it feels like such a stark departure from the way things were. Like you were talking about, like in the mid aughts, where it was like, it's drugs. They were a drug addict and they died in the bathtub. Oh, And it's like, yeah, or like in like, you know, sometimes like they would even like post photos, which was really horrible. And I feel like we've moved to a place as we as a society, which is great. We're not there yet. Like the work is not done, but like we're moving to a place where we're really understanding substance like an addiction as, um, you know, on the spectrum of mental health and not as like a personal flaw, which is how it was treated for a really long time. Yeah. And I think as we've moved away from that kind of stigma, we started to treat these deaths in a more empathetic way because even I, I don't think it was exactly the same, but I b- do believe that at least some of some of the substances that were in that were attributed to Heath Ledger's death mm-hmm. were also prescribed. I think sometimes there's this thing where it's like people point out like all the substances that somebody was taking because, because again, again you, you want to put distance to be like well this couldn't happen to me at yeah. 28 or 30 because, because I wouldn't be so dumb to take all these drugs and then and when they then you find out they're prescribed and then all of a sudden you're allowed to feel bad for them because they were prescribed drugs but honestly you should feel bad either way like either way it is something that could absolutely happen to you or somebody that you love some of the some of the more powerful media that I saw you know how like the debates were such a freaking shit show. shit show yeah yeah one of the things that i saw that i thought like you know actually some good has come of this were the reactions to biden talking about hunter's drug problem yes and him saying yeah he's my he's my son and i love him and he's overcome something really hard and i'm so proud of him i'm so glad you brought that up because i found that to be a very emotionally affecting moment in what was otherwise just like you know i I knew from way before this that yeah, I was, was going, going to, to vote, vote for, for Biden. Biden. Like, yeah, this this, this election, election in many ways was predecided before even the primaries for me. I did watch that debate, and I w- had basically all the same reactions that I thought I was going to have, which is like, "Wow, oh, Biden was not my first choice, but he's at least like s- doing a good job." And oh my god, this guy sucks so much. What? But I didn't think <laughs> about this guy sucking so much for four years that I didn't think that he could surprise me. And I didn't yeah, think that he could stoop so low as to like take my breath away, but he does always sometimes find a way to do that. So I don't know if you know about this, but there is this moment that a lot of historians like to talk about that where they say this is the moment that Richard Nixon lost the presidency to JFK. I don't know if you know that, but Richard Nixon ran against JFK in 1960 mm-hmm. and, and lost. And then later he was elected okay. to the presidency in the late 60s. But he was a he was a vice president and then he ran for the presidency against JFK. And that was the first ever televised presidential debate in the 60s. And people will always point to this moment where it's like, JFK and he's lit really well and he looks like a movie star because it's how he looked and he's very charismatic and he has every like answer really fast and then Richard Nixon is like shot like from like above and you can see his bald spot and he's very sweaty mm-hmm. and he's, he's like, like poorly lit and he just kind of looks like a villain yeah. um, and people will say like oh this is the moment that Richard Nixon lost to JFK and it's like the advent of the televised political Political campaign. And I sometimes wonder, because obviously it's so much more complicated than that, right? Like, yeah. if you lived through it, you're probably like, oh my God, that's, that was, that was not like it. a billion yeah. moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like on the, we're on the cusp of the 60s, the countercultural movement, the civil rights movement. Like, there's a lot yeah. of things that went into that, but it gets distilled down into this one moment. 
And sometimes I wonder if that moment oh, that could you that be about, the Joe Biden is moment? that going to be the moment that we look back that like when all this other bullshit that we're all living through now gets for, gets forgotten and is like just like you know a, a is that a test that people fail is that the moment where Joe Biden said something that I think so encapsulates the era that we live in mm-hmm. and made so many people who probably were undecided because neither side were attractive to them think. This is a person. I think so, because I feel like it encapsulates. Obviously, there are people who love Donald Trump and there's a lot going on there that we won't necessarily get into. But a lot of people that I've heard interviewed or even un- unfortunately, like no personally, like through, you know, family or whatever that support Donald Trump. It still comes from a place of fear and hatred. Right. right. Mm-hmm. It's this indoctrination of so, like, you know, this group of people are trying to take my jobs. Yeah. Or Democrats are going to try to take away Medicaid or Medicare, which is the saddest thing in the world because we're the only ones trying to protect Medicaid and Medicare. Or, you know, um, they're trying to like. Get, you know, they're trying to start do like nine month full term abortions. That was one I saw that was like Kamala Harris supports full term abor- abortions. And I was like, a full term abortion is just a murder. You know that, right? Right. right. Abortion abortion you can't be a baby, which is different than a fetus. Yeah. It's not a hot. That's not a thing that anybody does. So but I'm mean, like so much of that comes from a place of of fear and hate. Right. And then Joe Biden came with what in many ways I feel was the first really concise message of love and acceptance and empathy. Mm -hmm. And it felt like such a stark contrast in that moment, especially because like to break down this moment in case you didn't see it. I know we've like essentially started like a third what topic now, but (laughs) it's a weird episode. It's good. It was because Joe Biden was talking about his son, Bo Biden, who was a military veteran and a public lifelong public servant who died of brain cancer, who I get emotional about because I remember the story of when Joe Biden told. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Joe Biden told Barack Obama when they were still in the Obama administration that he was going to have to sell his house to help pay for Bo Biden's medical care for his brain cancer. And which was like such a formative moment for Barack Obama, where he was like, this is the vice president of the United States and he cannot afford to pay for the cancer care for his son who's dying of brain cancer. And Barack Obama ended up like giving him part of the money to do it so he wouldn't have to sell his house. And so he's telling this beautiful story about his dead son and Donald Trump, who's the dumbest fucking person alive, is like, well, I don't know Bo Biden. I know Hunter Biden, who does cocaine. Just a, just to take away everything else. Just, just a, a fucking, fucking stab cruel, the knife in. Just a cruel, small fucking thing to say. So mean, so small. And he's like, well, I know Hunter Biden does drugs, does cocaine. I don't know Bo. I don't even know Bo. And uh, and in that moment. Yes, Joe Biden could have gotten mad or even more likely he could have just gone into full politician mode and just been like, well, I know so and so does this and that. And instead he said, I love my son. Yeah, he is is, like you said, like he has overcome something big. I am so proud of him and he has faced something huge in his life and he has overcome it. And I love him. Oh, God. It was amazing. Emotional. I can imagine undecided voters. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine undecided voters, but like, go ahead and believe that they exist. And then imagine you're an undecided voter and you see that moment. I see people's minds changing. Yeah. And clearly they did because he fucking won by a lot. I won this election by a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, uh, me, Ellie Main, won this election by a lot. And you'll see all of my court cases coming up on Monday. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they're going to be really good. Very uh, tremendous. And you'll see how I won. God, Ellie, we have to we have to call this. This has been the longest, strangest episode. <laughs> it has been the longest and strangest episode. And this is our show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of What? Uh, my name is Ellie Main, and you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram or Ellie Maine on Twitter. And Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche, wherever internets are sold. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram and Patreon and Redbubble. And you can find our website at those two girls. Club. If you want to send us a message or check out our merch or do any of the fun things that you can do there, I highly recommend it personally. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I don't know, this week maybe go learn something. And yeah, keep, keep it loose, loose. Keep, keep it tight. But you better say your prayers at night. She's going to find you if you don't say your prayers at night. But down, 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 down,